0: It is the most alarming catastrophe of policy that I think I've ever seen anywhere to allow minors to use the school as a backdoor to prescription medical treatment while being affirmed by the social and professional environment in the school into thinking that this is what they need to do to circumvent the role of the parent as you would think that you're the primary stakeholder, but some other stakeholders know better than you.
1: I've got as my guest today, James Lindsay, founder of New Discourses, newdiscourses.com. And as I've heard him put it before, someone who spends a great deal of his time reading Karl Marx so that you don't have to. Welcome to the Matt Lohmeyer Show, James.
0: Hey, I'm glad to be here.
1: So your handle at Twitter is at ConceptualJames, and I was just on your Twitter account. I'm on your Twitter account somewhat regularly, and I saw that your account shows that you've got a hundred and sixty one thousand two hundred tweets is that accurate
0: probably i don't know
1: that's more than anyone
0: yeah well (laughs)
1: just about anyone
0: so here let me explain this strategy because a lot of people wonder about it actually funny enough i get a message probably on average about once every four days james you retweet too much and so about from who from just random people who are disgruntled with how much other people's content I share. And so I decided about a year and a half ago that maybe I was just frustrated, but that there's no way that with what's going on that I can take this on alone. Um, And I didn't intend to or want to, but I realized in some sense that that means we need to raise an army. And so I also think that Twitter is cheap. It's basically the lowest... Currency form of dialogue that there is, and so it doesn't mean much to me to just push the retweet button. I don't try to contour or curate my feed. I just things that it might benefit for people to see. I share them, and so it turns out I have about thirty or forty people who and I say this with whatever love is due to them um are a bit obsessive in sending me, I think, everything that triggers them on the internet every single day. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these things. And I share a large number of them. Um, My challenge is that when I, and I haven't figured out what to do about this yet, so I still just tweet too much. But my challenge is that when I see each one of these things in individual, they make sense to share. But in aggregate, they're a disaster. And so my solution to that so far has been that I don't care about the aggregate. It's like my Twitter, in some sense, is kind of weird and disgusting to say for me, but it's like the drudge report of Twitter.com for the globalist nightmare or whatever. And so I retweet a lot of people because I want to elevate their voices so people are paying attention to them. I retweet a lot of things because I think that individually they're important to understand and they have a feeling and a sense of the scope of what all is happening and largely i retweet a lot because i don't care people will send me something and say can you amplify this and i know they're just using my platform and i'm like okay i don't what does it It cost me nothing you're pretty good at that
1: well um you know i i got curious when i saw how many tweets you had done and there's you know i don't i'm not a prolific tweeter myself uh twitter user tweeter and uh but you know i follow jack posobik and some others who have a very large following elon musk has got a tremendous following and that's of course to be expected i mean he can tweet about uh the fact that he just had some chocolate milk and you know it gets uh tens of thousands of likes so i went and i tried to look and see how many tweets those really popular users have put out and they don't hold a candle to conceptual james
0: no it's because i retweet literally it counts your retweets. So. I retweet literally virtually everything that gets in front of me. It upsets people because I put about 5 seconds of thought into any given retweet. Um and so people, you know, I often end up retweeting things that I probably shouldn't have and or I have to delete something or unretweet something here and there, but uh I don't see Twitter as important. It's like I've actually got a scale in my my brain of how serious you have to be with the thing that you publish and the amount of seriousness that goes into publishing tweets is zero. Um not 0.01 is zero. It's the not a serious platform. The only cost that you incur from tweeting too much is that you bother people who follow you by tweeting too much. And that of course, you know, splits. There are the people who really like you, who want you to do it and they tell you they want they tell me that they want me to keep tweeting an absurd amount of, um, of stuff all the time. But then, you know, I do have real important people who follow me, and they sometimes don't appreciate how much of it there is. So
1: They have the right to ignore.
0: Yes. Twitter actually does not make it structurally easy to ignore. Um, I have certain people who I follow and I like very much, and I consider them friends and, and everything else, and they put out good content, but they tend to like, retweet, and often comment on everything that I put. So I get a push note. I get three or four push notifications per tweet from certain people.
1: So like every minute of the day?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Every time I look at my phone, it's like 20 notifications from a couple of different people, just like two of them. And of my phone will only allow me to have 25 total I'll push notifications from any given one app at a time. I don't know why. I don't know how to change that. And so I have this problem that other people, you know, reply to me or something, and I never see it because it's just full. From other, like this small number of people who interact with everything I put. Um, but Twitter doesn't, and I'm not complaining about that. I'm complaining about the fact that Twitter doesn't offer a structural ability to deal with that. There's no option where I can go in, say, to one of these accounts that I think over interacts with me and turn off uh, notifications when they like my content, for example, as opposed to I, maybe I want to see their replies, but I don't want to see that they put a heart on it
1: or whatever. You know, I I was really curious to see who tweets more than you and so I did the homework uh, of like going through those I follow. Couldn't find anyone as I said, so I googled it. Uh do you know have you heard of the Japanese guy whose account is Venice, at @venus? I have not. Does he beat me? Uh, on the uh he beats you by quite a bit. Uh you know, just for the listener or the viewer, if you don't know how many tweets 161,000 tweets is If you tweeted 25 times a day, Uh or retweeted, every day of the year for 17 years, you will have tweeted as much as James Lindsay. There we go. And this guy has blown you out of the water. Uh, This is an article from March of 2016. Uh, This apparently a real person in Japan on the 10th anniversary of Twitter's founding, again, which was 2016, he had sent his 37 millionth tweet
0: wow that's way ahead of me
1: and and he uh you think you sometimes tweet uh things that maybe aren't as meaningful because you take zero stock in the importance of um twitter uh, but he was tweeting like sometimes tens of thousands of tweets a day to get that, that number and it was apparently about just about anything so he was just retweeting everything that came across his yeah i'm not going to quite
0: do that um
1: worthless but um yeah. you know if i didn't know you i would think you don't do anything besides you know sit at home and tweet but i do know you and um i want to point out that james has written uh, is it two books i've got them both here or have you written more that i don't know about
0: over the history of my writing
1: uh like book books oh yeah i
0: think we're on number like published i think there are nine
1: Oh, dude. Well, how come I only know of two books? Because I don't really. I thought talk I read about...
0: the the two okay. are the relevant ones to what's going on in the world, and the previous okay. ones are completely other subjects that are not that relevant.
1: Well, well, James was a professor of mathematics at University of Tennessee. Is that right? Correct. And uh, the first book I came across that he had written was while I was writing my book, Irresistible Revolution, and it was this book that I've held up on the screen, Cynical Theories. Uh, pretty cool. Rainbow colored glasses on the cover. How activist scholarship made everything about race, gender, and identity, and why this harms everybody. You co authored that with Helen Pluckrose. And the most recently authored book, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which I recently got, is Race Marxism. And the subtitle is The Truth About Critical Race Theory and Praxis. And you know, we had a conversation in, I think it was Miami, if I, if I remember correctly, and you told me that you'll get into these grooves where you're researching, uh, you're reading, you're writing, and you'll wake up sometimes and start researching and writing, and uh, you'll basically look at the clock, and it's like 11 at night, and you've been doing it all morning, afternoon, and, and evening, and uh, realize you hadn't eaten anything. Talk to me about the process you go through uh, just briefly about your, you know, how how is it that you're researching? How many hours are you reading each day or each week about Marx, Marxist ideology, postmodernism, and a number of other things we're going to talk about today? And and how long is it taking you to put out these books? You, you apparently have more than um, I was aware of.
0: Yeah, I've actually written neither or published. Yet. I've written two more this year. So one is, I think, in the final stretch. One needs some work. But by the end of the year there'll be two more completed um one on the critical theory of education and one on uh marxism as a theology as a religion um good so those those are coming um a little shorter than race marxism about half as long in each case but uh the process you know it depends i've been trying to be very diligent since the weather got nice at spending a rather significant amount of time outside every single day. And I'm trying to slow down a little bit. Um, So I am spending at least a couple of hours outside, unless it's like terrible rain or something every single day. Um, But typically I'm reading anywhere between 15 and 20, 25 hours a week. If I fly, I read more because all I do on planes Mm -hmm. is read. Um,
1: And you're flying a lot.
0: I do fly a lot. Yes, I fly a very lot. Um, I'm probably going to have flown 200 commercial flights this year. Uh, By the end of the year, I had over 100 last year, so I fly a lot. Um, And so I read on planes exclusively. I mean, sometimes, to, to be more fair, I also will take what I'm reading and plan podcasts around what I'm reading, which isn't quite exclusive reading, but this is basically what I do. And so when I'm here at home, I read a little bit less, but largely I have a, either a you know word processor document open or I have a uh, email tab open and I just kind of copy. I read almost everything on devices now. I sometimes read physical paper books, but I find it to be extremely inefficient because I can't copy paste out of them. And so I will copy-paste paragraphs into documents and then start taking them apart and trying to understand them. And that becomes the fodder for the podcasts. That becomes the fodder for the books that I start to structure. And as they start to take on a shape, then I'll finally hit a point, and I may have said this to you more when we were in Miami together, that I feel like I have to vomit out what I've thought about. And that's when the real writing process starts. And
1: And that's an uninterrupted flow of a lot of writing. Yes. I mean, how how much writing are we talking about? Because even writers usually just get through little segments at a time.
0: Anywhere between five and 20,000 words a day until I'm done. I wrote Race Marxism in 10 days, the first draft. It's 100,000 words. I wrote the first draft in 10 days. Um, This book on education, I was a little bit interrupted with travel and other things, but it's 50,000 words again in like three weeks, something like this
1: you know even if you can type fast and uh, for people that haven't written a book well let me put it this way for people that have written a book you know how phenomenally difficult it would be to even write 5000 words a day uh that's a lot of writing um so you've you've clearly got a unique talent or gift for both research and writing that um uh i think is frankly quite odd it is uh, odd. most people can't can't digest uh and or regurgitate the amount they can't digest the amount of information you're taking in first off, but then to regurgitate it in a coherent manner. And your writing is quite coherent. It's actually very good writing. Um, and so so I, I, the reason I bring this up is because I consider you uh, an expert in this field. It's really interesting given your background in mathematics. Um, you have a PhD in mathematics?
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: Uh, I'm guessing you weren't studying a lot of Marxism in those years that zero. you were uh,
0: like literally zero philosophy <laughs> or humanities. Or I mean, other than the basic required courses, you know, is the so-called liberal education going through my undergraduate. Yeah. Zero. Everything was an uh, uh, undergraduate major was in physics. And so um, everything was physics and math courses from like third year forward. I took one semester where I took a whole bunch of business classes too, which I didn't really need to do that, but I thought it would be interesting. So, um but besides that, all it was was physics and math. There was no philosophy, no humanities, no I didn't know I couldn't have told you who Jean-Jacques Rousseau was. I couldn't have told you I knew who Karl Marx was, but only dimly. I'd never read a word of Karl Marx before maybe 3 or 4 years ago. 3 years ago probably. And it's really strange because I got into this backwards. I got into this from the woke literature and started chewing my way backwards. Um, You held up cynical theories. The way we wrote cynical theories was we started in the kind of last five years, 10 years maybe of woke literature, going back to maybe, I guess, 2011. And we finished it at the end, at the middle of 2019. So eight or nine years worth. We started there and then we worked backwards into the 60s and 70s. And then we told the story forward. Um, and then I continued research and worked backwards further into the fifties and sixties and then into the twenties and thirties, and then all the way back and then back to to mid 19th century.
1: yeah. So one of the reasons I've liked talking with you is because you're like a walking encyclopedia and what I'm hoping to do for the, uh, the listener and the viewer, I'm going to ask you a bunch of what is questions. What is this? What is that? Okay and kind of put you on the spot uh and then depending on the energy any one of those topics may have um we can uh tease it apart a little bit further and maybe get into uh, practically speaking how does you combat any one of those or all of them as a whole in the aggregate okay um if that's all right
0: yeah i am a little encyclopedic so
1: yeah i think so um and it's a gift for us right now you know we need um people who know what they're talking about to speak up so that the rest of us can learn and in that regard again i'll put in another plug for new discourses um i found that your website newdiscourses.com, after i'd read cynical theories um and it wasn't you know it was an impressive platform then but it's grown quite a bit do you know how many hours of content you've put on the new discourses website and then and then beyond that like for those who are subs Um, How much additional content is is there for people to dig through?
0: So it's difficult, actually, for me to guess the total number of hours, but it's a lot. Um, There are three podcasts. There is about a quarter million words worth of written text uh, on the platform that I've put together, some of which is published from other people. Probably about three quarters of it is mine, uh, in addition to the books that I've put together. In the terms of the podcasts, one of the three podcasts hit 100 episodes. That's the subscriber-only podcast that I made. I made that actually not to lure people into subscribing, although if that happens, that's great. I actually felt guilty because I had people sending me money via subscription platforms like Patreon and, and YouTube subscribers and all this, and I wasn't doing anything special for them. So I decided to make a special podcast for them at the, literally the first of 2021. The first one was like the first week of January last year. And um, we just put out the 100th episode of that. And those range anywhere from 15 minutes, maybe up to about half an hour. So you can do the multiplication there. Um, The New Discourses podcast is the kind of main one. We're in 70-something episodes of that now. Some of those
1: are quite lengthy.
0: Some of those are over four hours, and most of them are about two hours and there are 70 something of them that i've done in the same amount of time so i don't turns out i don't just tweet then there's a third podcast that i've set up called new discourses bullets only in the past maybe four months i went to um oklahoma and talked with a bunch of lawmakers there and they said that they you know love to listen to the podcast but these hour and a half two hour podcasts (laughs) are difficult for their schedules um and if I could kind of do these kind of concise little nuggets that they could run with, you know, and share 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes or less, then that would be great. And so I started a new one. And I don't know how many of those were on, um, 18 or something like that I've put out. And the goal with those, although occasionally I go over, I think the longest ones get up close to 20 minutes. The goal is to keep them around 10 minutes plus or minus two. So, um the idea is that they're a bullet point summary. That's the pun. Uh, like, a, But also like, haha, I'm firing bullets into your ideology. Um, but that's the idea, is that they're something bullet point type. They address one topic only. They don't necessarily go deep. The ones that have run long on that are actually ones where I read from their literature rather than just kind of giving a concise explanation because I need people to see. For example, I have a one that I did a exploration of the idea of critical thinking versus critical theory. And I just read these three paragraphs from this lunatic scholar who tells you very explicitly, I mean, I don't have to explore it. There's this weird show not tell thing that, that makes it more believable. But anyway, when you add all that up, you know, hundreds, hundreds of hours two, 300 hours of audio content quarter million or more 300,000 words of text content. And that's just been since I launched New Discourses in February 2020, right before the pandemic started. And so that plus the three books or four books I've written in the intervening time.
1: Now, one of the reasons I'm really interested in my viewer and listener being introduced into your work if they're not already familiar with it is because in addition to say, five-minute PragerU videos or other short clips that people find on the internet that help give them kind of an in-your-face, overly-simplified explanation of some of these uh, schools of thought or Marxist ideology, for example, or critical race theory, is that you have the platform where people can actually dive in. I mean, it's like listening to one of your podcasts is almost like reading a book. I mean, if, if you want to understand something about Hegel, and the Hegelian dialectic. You go listen to James Lindsay's New Discourses for three or four hours, and you'll have multiple episodes where this will really get laid out for you. You'll get exposed to a bunch of literature, quotes directly from the authors, uh, and someone that knows what they're talking about. And so if you're invested in learning more about these uh, topics, I think you're, you're a great resource. And so that's uh, with that said, I'd like to start with a, a pretty uh, direct question. Um simple question, uh, but talked about a lot, and uh, sometimes the answers aren't as simple as the questions. but what is critical race theory?
0: yeah, okay um so obviously th- that's what the point of the race Marxism book is, so I can summarize this for you in about a hundred thousand words. Um, okay, good. no uh critical race theory is a Marxist theory of race now I had just to be clear up front, I talked to. I published Race Marxism, and this upset a lot of Marxists because it, it's not what Marxism is. It's an economic theory, yada, yada, yada. So I spoke with a Marxist. Uh, I, I, I mean, I know him professionally, but I like him, so I guess we're, we're friends of, a, of a, after a fashion. And um, he said, you know, I'm going to have to take umbrage, a you know, friendly conversation at lunch. I'm going to have to take umbrage with you calling your book Race Marxism. That can't be. And I said, give me five minutes to explain, and I will consent to using the term pseudo-Marxism if it makes you feel better for what it is. But I think I'll convince you that what I'm going to say is correct. And in the end, he did agree, but he wanted to use pseudo-Marxism because he feels like what we concluded was that the, the certain racial theorists had hijacked the architecture of Marxism and applied it in the domain of race as opposed to in the domain of economics. And we agreed completely on this, that there is the same exact structure, that there's a bourgeoisie and a proletariat who are in intrinsic conflict. The bourgeoisie creates and maintains an ideology that maintains the structure of society as such to their own benefit, that they're willfully blind to, but you can awaken a racial consciousness, both within members of the bourgeoisie, but especially within the racial proletariat, That can then lead to banding together in solidarity to seize the means of cultural production and overthrow the existing order for a new one. And so this is the essence of what critical race theory is. It is a method of studying the concept of race that mirrors the way that Marx studied economics. And if you want to say mirrors, if you want to say is, if you want to say has stolen, I don't care which one of those things. I actually just I don't care which one of those is accurate Well, does it really make a difference to it it seems like academics
1: yeah academics pride themselves in being able to tease out the nuance but as far as praxis goes which is in the subtitle of your book as far as its manifestation in modern society it almost seems like those that nuance fades into insignificance because it is an in-your-face bullying kind of religion or ideology that is insistent and you use the terms bourgeoisie and proletariat and I'll, i'll just restate oppressor versus oppressed classes or groups of people yeah. that that are uh now um not an economic kind of class stratification but a race identity group right. stratification
0: correct yeah so there's an upper class it gives itself it assigns itself actually according to marx there's an upper class in society that assigns itself the capacity of being in the upper class what it mostly does is it grants itself access to some special form of property that it excludes other people from And then it weaves a story, which Marx called ideology, or a set of stories that explains why they get to be in that privileged position, whereas the oppressed are to be excluded, whether it's, you know, it's just natural, God ordained it because of our hard work through merit, the meaning of education, or whatever else. They tell these stories that explain why they get to be privileged and other people are going to be oppressed. This is the basic structure of Marxist conflict theory or class antagonism. Within the confines you say, so what is critical race theory, very bluntly, it is the belief that white people created the idea of race and in particular assigned themselves a special kind of property called whiteness that gives them certain privileges in society that come along with having white skin and the cultural values that they associated with people who have white skin at the time, primarily in the 17th and 18th centuries. This. Creates, uh, like I said, a set of privileges for people who are granted access to whiteness, whether that is Anglo-Saxons and Teutonic people originally, but then starts to add in Irish and Italian and, you know, various other white groups that came to the United States or European groups that came to the United States and got designated as white for political reasons, whether that includes East and sometimes South Asians now because of different cultural values and the high level of success that they have when they come into the, the Western context and professional life and the way that they tend to structure their families, et cetera. So there's this form of, of property, kind of nebulous cultural property called whiteness that's associated with having white skin or doing what white people want you to do. And they grant themselves access to it. The proletariat, in this case, the excluded outsider, the oppressed class are called people of color. And people of color, color becomes... the the, the color line, as W.E.B. Du Bois called it, becomes the line of stratification. And of course, that has its own further stratifications within it. Asian is here, Latino is there, Black is here, Indigenous is there. And that is kind of a complicated site of contest. But they're all supposed to be unified in solidarity against whiteness. The ideology that the white people in, say, the 171800s would have written for themselves to justify this is called white supremacy. White supremacy is this kind of mythology that white people are in some way superior and supreme and that people of color are therefore in some way inferior and have to be excluded for their own good and the good of society, etc. And they believe that this ideology in its essence still exists, but it's changed form rather tremendously. You can't be quite so blunt with those, you know, supremacist claims. But this is why they go around saying that everything is white supremacy. These are elements of white supremacy culture to be, you know, punctual, meritocratic, you know, loyal. They have this whole list of things and urgency, primacy of the written word are all these elements of white supremacy culture that they've laid out. And as opposed to spoken testimony, for example, with written word. Or storytelling, you know, they want white supremacy culture values facts and evidence over storytelling and counter storytelling and narrative. Uh, this is another one of their kind of divisions. So what you have then is a is a racial upper class that's created a story for why it gets to be the racial upper class. A racial lower class is excluded from those privileges. And this structures society according to something they call structural racism or systemic racism that maintains that stratification and exclusion and system of privilege, yada, yada, So we've
1: heard that, yeah, systemic racism, structural racism, those are terms we've heard a lot in the military uh, in our diversity, inclusion, and equity trainings. Uh, They've added an A to that as well. It's now, I I just saw a policy memorandum that said D-I-E-A for accessibility as well um now and I, you've written about some of that in cynical theories uh, as well but when when we hear terms like systemic racism and structural racism do you do you accept that those well i guess you have to understand definitions and you've been getting at that but do you accept those terms as they're used today as having value or meaning or are they uh in, in some way misleading
0: so that's a difficult question because they are a matter of worldview. Within the worldview that sees things phenomenologically, which is where kind of all of this Marxist thought backs up into, and Hegel's 1807 work was The Phenomenology of Spirit, within that worldview, it all makes sense. It's all as described, but the problem is, is that requires accepting a worldview how, how how not just society, but the world itself is organized and operates. And if you don't accept that worldview, it doesn't, it, it's not even in that it doesn't exist. It doesn't even make sense. It's just not how things are. So as I don't accept the worldview, I don't accept the terms. I don't accept what it's referring to at all. While there may be something to which it points that something is very different from how it's characterized by those terms and could be understood in vastly different ways in, in, in to much more advantage. So the idea is. Anytime you have a pair of so-called dialectical opposites, an upper class and a lower class, that their interaction creates a structure, and that structure is what is the organizing principle of that, whether it's society or whatever else, and it has a process of playing out that's supposed to transform the, nature, the very nature of what is there. And structural racism only exists in a worldview that accepts that society is actually ordered this way that it kind of sees things in terms of of, of a class consciousness and a class antagonism, and that the structure is actually the result of that antagonism. If you stop thinking about groups in terms of being kind of unified classes, then the entire thing evaporates and doesn't exist. There could be institutional racism. The institution could be enacting racist policy, whether that's de facto or de jure. That's possible. There could be individual racism, but when you start talking about the idea that there's a that the system itself is organized such that racist outcomes occur, you absolutely have to deny individuality to get to that point. And that's a great point. Yeah. So the for me, it's to ask the question. The simple answer is, do I think that these things exist? The answer is no. But that misses all of what's Mm -hmm. important. What is important is that you you should be asking me simultaneously, like, do you think that angels and demons exist? Like, if you Mm -hmm. accept certain metaphysical premises, then that is the description for whatever something is in the world. If you accept certain metaphysical premises about the dialectical nature of subjectivity and objectivity and the way that that structures all things and they unfold throughout time and history, then structural racism is a phenomenon within that universe, but if you don't accept it, it doesn't exist. Um and people don't, I think, understand just how profoundly uh theological, or if you have to be careful, you know, metaphilosophical uh the whole dialectical architecture is that it, it's a view of it, 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 as paulo pronou- uh describes it in his book the politics of education it's an entire concept of man in the world and once you accept mm-hmm. that as self as a self-evident description of the structure of reality then yeah it exists
1: you know some people may not have been educated or assimilated into that worldview that is, as you've described it, a kind of prerequisite for viewing the world that way. But over time, and through kind of subversive uh, tactics, or uh, propaganda, or because of the public education system, or because they're getting D. And E. trainings in the military or in the federal agencies, they begin by and by to accept some of these lines of reasoning about race and how it, be- and it starts to become a lens. Through which they see everything in the world, and by which they're interpreting all of the data about them in the world, even if they hadn't come from some other worldview that would have lent to um, the critical race, the Marxist-rooted critical race theory worldview. And so, it's it's interesting to me that even though I agree with you, there are these entirely different worldviews, kind of at odds and competing with one another. Um, and you don't accept that worldview that is that 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 lends itself to the structural racism uh uh term or the systemic racism um the systemically racist society don't you think that there are those today that even with just a little bit of exposure over time uh they fall victim to or prey to this this worldview and and their worldview kind of slips away or somehow this takes root and somehow this does become people's prevalent Um, way of thinking, and as one, I had a young black female enlisted airman come and sit down with me in my office when when I was a commander, and this is the way she put it. She said, I wasn't raised to believe this way, but, and then what she said after that was, you know, I've been attending these trainings, and I've learned that I'm an outsider, both in my country and in the uniform, and that we live in a systemically racist society. So how is it that not having originally had that worldview, you go from that position to almost you know in short order sometimes over not a very long period of time adopting the lens of racism as your lens through which you now view everything in society it's the explanation for everything in society uh, everyone about you who isn't your same race is out to get you if you're a person of color or black H- how do you get there i mean Uh, I'd call it subversion, like you don't realize that it's happening, but it happens so quickly that it's surprising to me that people don't recognize that they're being indoctrinated.
0: Yeah, we've actually, uh, a group of friends of mine and worked on the grievance Studies Affair together uh, and I have been calling, we've been saying that it's like this, we were thinking it at the time was the postmodern tree, but it's actually this entire dialectical worldview. It looks very much like the, the liberal enlightenment tree. It's, it's actually kind of a weird mirror image of it. And we've been saying, we've been using the metaphor of a tree. And what we're saying, what we've said is that the, they planted this tree right next to the liberal tree. So if you're up okay. living in the liberal tree and you're in the branches, you might cross over into the branches of the other tree without ever yeah. having realized it. And it's then really suddenly amazing. you're in the other tree. And their objective is when they get enough people into their tree, they're going to cut the liberal tree down. And then they're they're the tree. And so that's the metaphor that we've been using. So there is this idea that it's pretty easy to slide in between these things and pick up pieces of it. Um, Because it is easy to look, especially with a broadly modernist worldview that we've all We Most of us don't realize it, but we've all held to some degree over the last at least two centuries. Um, There is this idea that, wow, we have the power and capacity to change the world we live in so we can transform the world that we live in. And so the idea that we can work with reality to change it, that's a modernist, liberal, enlightenment-based idea, and then that we can fundamentally transform its nature, that's the uh, dialectical idea, are similar enough to where it's easy to cross over between them. And so you can slide into this. But there is a process. They actually call it, and they've spent a century developing it. Karl Marx did not do very much with this. He never really figured it out. Mm -hmm. But it's a process that's taken on the name conscientization. The Chinese. Say that, say that one more time. Conscientization. It took me a long time to practice to actually be able But
1: to not that. Kant, not a manual Kantian. No, 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 no. Con- it's like conscientization. conscientization. It is okay, the conscientization. It is Okay. So
0: you are being conscientized. You're being made that, conscious. That's not
1: going woke, is it? It is going is that, woke. Okay. It that's literally what it is. Going woke. Conscientization yeah. is woke. No wonder they chose a different word. Yeah, woke. Well, that's it was originally written
0: in Portuguese, which makes it even more complicated, which is conscientization <laughs> uh, in Portuguese. But that's the idea. Marx talked about this process of humanization. The idea of his philosophy Mm -hmm. was to humanize not just yourself, but society and the world around you. So You were to make the world fit for human life. He actually says in the economic and philosophic manuscripts that he wrote in 1844, that the world as it is isn't fit for humans. We're too too damn good for it. We have to make the world fit for us. Like we're some kind Mm. of kings or something that have to raise it up. But we're also, because we live in an alienated state, we are also not good enough for ourselves. So we have to remake ourselves. And this is where you end up, you know, under Lenin, uh, half a century later, getting the new Soviet man program. They're going to remake man to be suited for socialism. Mm. And that idea has never really gone away ever since, that Mm. we're going to remake man himself to be suited for the world that they want to create.
1: But now we want to remake him into a whole bunch of different things.
0: Correct. But the, the conscientization process is laid out. They've de- been developing it. I mean, it really got its first legs put under it in 1923. There's a Hungarian Marxist by the name of, name of George Lukács, who a lot of people in the West haven't heard of, but he was a big deal. He helped lead the revolution in Hungary, the Soviet Revolution in 1919, uh, that only lasted a few months. He was appointed. Belakun was in charge of that. He was appointed the deputy commissar of education under Belakun. He, for people who know these things, rather famously adopted a rampant sexual education program in the schools as.
1: Hmm. Sounds bad. familiar.
0: Yes, because he understood that if you sexualize children, you sever the ties to family, you sever the ties to their own stability, you sever the ties to religion, and therefore you hmm. can transform a culture very, very quickly.
1: Um, so what you're saying is the tactics have been in place for a very long time. Same 19, old playbook. 19
0: is when the, Yeah. So over 100 yeah. years now, just over 100. And so, But he wrote a book, and after this all collapsed, he went back to think about why is this all falling apart. He was one of the fathers of what's called cultural Marxism, and he wrote a book in 1923 called History and Class Consciousness. And the middle part of that book, which, by the way, for Marxist books, it's a hard read. They're all hard, but it's an elegant read. Um, It's actually somewhat pleasant to read, very difficult. But he explains that what Marx had wrong, or one of the things Marx had wrong, is that Awakening to class consciousness is a process. You have to look at it as in terms of, he, he calls it a, a, a gradated program. There, there, there's steps to it, right? It's it's So you introduce to people first that, hey, look, we actually do have class society, and that would be almost a class awareness. But the way that class society works is an intrinsically dehumanizing of the people that are in the lower class. And then you start to get them to see, but this isn't Society isn't us and them. It's us and them as a cohesive whole. It's a dynamic. You can't be marginalized unless there's a marginalizer. Marginalization is a process that takes place in a bigger whole. And so he's moving you through these steps of getting you to see the world from a Marxist consciousness. Um, After that, you, you have to get these people to understand, look, if you're in the upper class, you have the ability to to move history around just by virtue of being in the upper class. That's what it really means to be there. But if you're in the lower class, you have to band together as a class. You have to adopt a class consciousness. You have to be aware that your class, as a unit, is a historical object that can change the course of history if you band together and work together. Because one of the things they were fighting against in the 1920s after World War One, two big things kind of happened. One was that they had predicted before the war. That the workers parties would start to unify internationally and this huge international workers party would kind of galvanize especially after the revolution the russian revolution you know in moscow or with moscow as headquarters it didn't happen and then world war one also when it came to it the workers of the world did not unite they all be they were like we're italians we're germans we're british you know they all went to their national identities and so they were like something's wrong you know, we didn't get into this kind of universal human identity or worker identity or class identity. They went to their national identities. And so they wanted to figure out how to overcome that. And the goal was that you have to kind of coax people into seeing themselves as part of a class and then coax that class into seeing itself as something that can be revolutionary if it understands the nature of the true nature of class society. This has been refined and refined and refined and refined for a hundred years. I mentioned Paulo Freire. He developed it extensively in the 60s, 70s, going into the 80s, and turned it into literally a model of education. So now it's very quick. It's very efficient. Um, It's almost in perfect parallel, if you read Robert J. Lifton, to the process of thought reform that was employed in the Chinese prisons under Mao to get people to see from the people's standpoint. It was the point of those, is to to brainwash you, that's where we get the word brainwash, if you didn't know that, Xinao in Chinese, uh, wash brain. Was the, ter- the Chinese being blunt as they are? You speak Mandarin, right?
1: Yeah, Xinao.
0: Yeah. So the- they're very blunt people. They just tell you what it is. You know, why do we call them struggle sessions? Because uh, do chang, because it- struggle, <laughs> you have to struggle with it. So they just say it. Um, But yeah, so this brainwashing process in the the Chinese prisons mirrors this in kind of a more crude, brutal fashion. But they've got it very sophisticated now to get you to, to, to snap into a cult consciousness that's rooted in class identity. Hey, you know you've had these kinds of experiences. Let's talk about your lived experiences. Let's talk about how that made you feel. Don't you realize that there's a bigger explanation for this? It's not just that some people are jerks. That's not a very satisfactory explanation. There's a big answer for this. And if you understand and accept the big answer, there's something we can do about it. You know, we can we can challenge the entire structure of the system that's causing this and that's going to keep causing it in the future. And that actually can radicalize people into this line of thinking very, very quickly.
1: It's like a kind of psychopathy.
0: it is it is it is is. it's a conspiracy it's actually a paranoid conspiracy theory that society's been rigged against you by some them that has all the power to rig the society do
1: do you think that this ideology does it appeal to those who have a tendency towards psychopathy
0: i would say that that is uh the case yes um certain Personality disorders and certain forms of psychopathy, I think it does appeal to them. So it's like a magnet to those people. Uh, psych- psychopathy itself is a little bit more tricky because these people, it's almost like being colorblind to empathy. It's like whatever piece in your architecture, your neural architecture in your brain that makes you empathetic, that makes you understand what it is to truly you know, act on a human level, it's just not there. And there's something pitiable about that situation, but these people are gravitating, will gravitate towards something like this because it enables them to achieve status in a very efficient and, and, you know, low cost way. You adopt a certain perspective. You cry about how, you know, you've been wronged all the time and you get advanced. It also though attracts and nourishes, and probably when you deal with the children, creates um, kind of vulnerable narcissists. It gets people to focus on themselves and how they've been wronged and to feel into that all the time. And then that's kind of its own spiraling thing. Different views, though, like schizoidal personality, borderline personality, antisocial personality might be drawn to it for, for other reasons. But it taps into anywhere you feel like there's that sense of, of aggrievement that the world's not structured to suit you. Um, And all of these things that, you know, you think have gone wrong for random reasons, have a cohesive explanation. It it really lures in and attracts those people. Uh, The goal is always to identify and exploit vulnerability and then turn it to cult doctrine. Um, All cult, all cult uh, initiation follows that. Which,
1: Which will be in your upcoming book, I'm guessing. Uh, to to some degree about marxism as a religion?
0: The yeah, the theology of marxism book will will cover that. I just did a because people are not going to want to necessarily have to wait that long. There was a series of videos I did a workshop in Phoenix Arizona at the beginning of June and um we did myself and a colleague each did three 2-hour lectures so there'll be six 2-hour lectures covering the theology of marxism and the role of this theology as it he covered mostly how it's been applied to society at large and the church in specific and i cover the theory hegel and marx and then kind of this next phase of conscientization so the third lecture is specifically on conscientization it talks about the thought reform prisons and um how these things are are lined up
1: what will you do if the grid goes down how will you survive without food water and heat introducing one sunrise the first of its kind in massive on-demand power instantly available at any residential commercial or remote location power your home your office your ev your rv your farm your cabin your bug out bunker your glamping weekend with the family or all of them bring instant power to any situation anywhere non-toxic cobalt and lead free as well as fire resistant one Sunrise mobile power stations are made to run in over 100-degree temps or at negative 20. For when the grid goes down, there's One Sunrise. Visit onesunrise.com to learn how you can prepare today for no power tomorrow. Let me let me read something to you, and this comes out of your book, Cynical Theories. It's towards the end, and you've got these sections. Um, I want to say this chapter is an alternative to the ideology of social justice, and, and you have principled opposition. Example one, um, you say, we affirm that racism remains a problem in society and needs to be addressed. We affirm, that's the bolded part. And then here's the second part that I have a question about. You say, we deny, that's the bolded part, that critical race theory and intersectionality provide the most useful tools to do so. So given what we've Described, uh, you know, I asked the question, "What is critical race theory?" Um, and and we've talked through some of that. I know we didn't talk through intersectionality, but let's just focus on the critical race theory part. You said we deny that critical race theory provides the most useful tools to combat racism in society, Uh, and I think based on what you've said, you know, we can see why that is fraught with pitfalls. But what is the proper means to combat racism in society should the state be involved uh, are collectively groups of people involved or do we do this individually I mean what is the proper mechanism to to teach people i guess uh the wrongness of racism and how do you fix that and will it ever be fixed
0: the bad news first racism is never going to go all the way away it is a belief that people can hold it is a matter ugly as it may be of personal conscience and i've long ago finally relinquished the idea that if your movement depends on everybody deciding to think that in a certain way you're just you're you're, you're tilting at windmills you're not going to get there i don't think that we're ever going to eliminate racism completely i do think that we had already taken tremendous strides to lessening and maybe even minimizing its impacts the state does get involved and individuals get involved. These are two different domains, so kind of a macro and micro circumstance. Um, the macro circumstance What's the
1: proper role of the state? Yeah, in the macro sense, what's the proper role of the state in combating racism? I mean, we have the Civil Rights Act and movement
0: yeah, so where, where, where we we've
1: criminalized. Criminal. Okay.
0: Yeah, Civil Rights Act, the fourteenth, well, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, for example. We can, if we want to add in out of the race, dimension we can add in uh the nineteenth amendment where women gain suffrage uh in a different domain. So this idea that we're going to have a society that at the level of the law does what it can to be race blind or identity blind and to you know justice is supposed to be wearing a blindfold holding scales in one hand and a sword in the other. And so to you know to, to show that we're, we're not being partial in our our adjudications. So the Civil Rights Act properly um, interpreted, the 14th Amendment properly interpreted, where we don't add in layers of this class is protected and that class is not protected. And this is a subtle thing that happened. But where everybody gets the same protections under the law and that law is upheld, I think, is the role the state plays in this. Um, when I say that there's a subtle thing here, I should mention what that is. Things like race, sex, race and sex, particularly disabled status, are what are called protected classes. What, that's fine. You can say that race is a protected class in that it has a title within the Civil Rights Act to protect it. But what's happened is is that certain races have been shifted into protected classes while other races are no longer protected. And I this, just
1: spoke last week with uh, Kenny Shu. President yes. of Colorus United, who you know yeah. about this very problem. I mean, the discrimination, for example, that Asians face in academic in university admissions processes, for example, because their test scores are so much outrageously higher yes. a standard than, say, blacks. Yes, uh four hundred point higher SAT. I think you mentioned. So yeah, the, it manifests as a kind of when you force equality of outcomes or equity. Yes, you're you are there's a state sanctioned forced inequality
0: correct that, it, discrimination that, accompanies that. Actually.
1: discrimination yeah right. that's right
0: and so there's this kind of weird you know class conscious shift in the definition that's actually created what the, one of the problems that we live in is we have two constitutional paradigms in the united states right now one of which is broadly speaking originalist and one of which is this kind of post civil rights era where protected class went from you know, race as a, as a class of, of, of way as a way to classify people to specific classes with you know a class identity being treated as what's the protected class black being or people of color being protected classes, whereas the whichever is designated as dominant is no longer a protected class. That's a, a Marxist way of thinking about it, and so we actually are operating in two constitutional paradigms with regard to what equal protection under the law means one of which tries to make up for things and one of which does not. And I think that it is the state's role to stay neutral to the greatest degree possible in this, but also to enforce, to make sure that if there is racist intent, or even if there's not racist intention, um, but that there's some kind of you know, consistent issue with discrimination, that there's at least an investigation. hearing it is, How can whatever. you measure intent? Well, that's the hard part about the whole thing is intention. It's like
1: minority report.
0: Correct. It's extremely difficult. Um, I mean, sometimes you can catch people on, you know, a hot mic or that they've written something down Mm -hmm. that they shouldn't have or whatever. And you can detect that there was intention. So this is really kind of the difficult area in the law where a lot of this come up. The same kind of thing comes up, by the way. And I think feminism has nucleated around this a lot with the intention with rape rape is an extraordinarily or sexual assault in general is an extraordinarily hard thing to prove Mm -hmm. because it often involves two people who are in a private situation. Nobody's spying on them or paying attention. Nobody can see what's going on. So it comes down to his word versus her. No, she said it was fine. And she says, no, I didn't or vice versa or whatever. So uh, when you have these very gray areas in the law, the state aspect becomes quite impotent, which creates a great deal of frustration and a great deal of room for exploitation. So I'm going to punt on the question of how you prove intent, except that in some cases it is, and to acknowledge that it is a very high bar.
1: Yeah, you start to go down this path very when you talk about intent, which I understand criminally can be important. um, You start to get into the arena, again, that is weaponized of implicit bias, unconscious bias, and uh while on the one hand it's even dangerous to judge intent behind what people do say and you hear them say now you start to get into the arena where people didn't do or say anything but i just know based on the group identity that you have that you have these implicit biases that we're going to have to beat out of you or else and right. um yeah you know our, our military members still write to me today uh Mentioning their disgust with some of the diversity and inclusion trainings, they're still being subjected to. They're not going away anytime soon. Uh, it's a part of the Biden administration's policy. And so uh, it's used, to, you know, there's a current moment and a platform that is leveraged by people who really seem keen on teaching this stuff uh, implicit bias and unconscious, un- unconscious bias. They even have their own trainings. And and we train people to recognize what they can't otherwise recognize about their beliefs or their value systems, and people sit there and scratch their head and wonder why they're spending their time doing this. um Do-chan. you know, and, um, yeah, <laughs> I
0: strongly recommend people in those situations go read Robert J. Lifton's book from the '60s titled um, "Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism." They will recognize in the Chinese prisons the DEI workshops, the unconscious bias workshops, where they're being taught to recognize from an ideological perspective the contents of their life. Uh, in those prisons, what would happen is you would be accused of some crime and arrested, hauled off to prison. The They'd throw you in a cell with people who were further along the path with, than you, maybe eight or nine others. Those people would struggle you. Their point was to to prepare you to, to confess your crimes, to make you feel like confessing your crimes relieves all the pressure on you and makes your life better. And then every day you would go to interrogation. And in interrogation, they would say you've been accused of a lot of crimes against the Chinese people or against the government. Confess them, and you have no idea what you did. And you start trying to guess at what you did. You have unconscious crimes. And the Pro- name that they gave for the process that or the goal of the process is to learn to recognize your crimes from the people's perspective or from the people's standpoint and so what they're trying to do is well you see you took this test we have proved that you have unconscious bias with racism and now we're going to give you this training to teach you to recognize your crimes so that you can confess to the racism you didn't even know you were participating that's
1: in. that's crafty
0: it's very crafty um, and then yeah. as you admit it And you confess to it and you testify to it. And uh, so, you know, in the prisons, they'll say, well, I did have that friend. Then he did go back and forth to France. And maybe I did tell him things that would constitute passing information. So maybe it was espionage. You start to believe that you were accidentally doing espionage. And then from the people's perspective, that you start to believe that that was, you know, unconsciously intentional. And they get you to confess to things that are completely fabricated. They, they they only exist in this topsy-turvy worldview that they've kind of forced onto you. Uh, and, it, you know, whether it's prison, whether it's a DEI workshop, an unconscious bias workshop, whether it's, you know, social-emotional learning in schools, it's all the same thing. Now, I want to actually say just as a, as a point, when we said in that we affirm racism exists and that we deny critical race theory has the right tools. I want to give a medical analogy for what we meant with that, if you will. So imagine like, you know, you're out working on the farm or whatever. You catch yourself on the barbed wire. You cut yourself. It swells up. It gets infected, right? And so you're going to have to put some kind of antibiotic on it. You're going to have to treat it somehow. You go to the doctor. If the doctor was the analogous to a critical race theorist, they're going to say this is a systemic problem. That, in fact, what's happening here. The reason that it's swollen up and filled with pus and all this, well, that pus is white blood cells and they're doing all this. So the reason that it's actually happening is your immune system. And so if we suppress your immune system, that problem will stop. So we're going to put you on immunosuppressants and chemotherapy in order to get the reaction, the inflammation, the swelling, et cetera, to stop because it's a systemic inflammation that that's causing all of the problems that you're having with the cut. And when we say that, that critical race theory is the wrong tool, I therefore i emphatically saying that it, because of the way that it approaches the issue of racism, it does not possess the necessary perspective to diagnose the problem correctly. Not, neither does it have, because it comes from the wrong perspective, the correct way to prescribe a medicine that will make the problem better.
1: Well, in fact, if you applied that, you know, using that analogy and teasing it out a bit further, if you apply the wrong procedure... Based on that diagnosis, you can infect the entire organism and uh, destroy the entire thing.
0: Absolutely. Um, and unfortunately, these these this is a deeper point. I put this on Twitter yesterday or the day before. One um, of ten
1: thousand tweets, tweets yesterday.
0: I put it on there, but that the people don't understand that the religion, the dialectical religion, is a religion of transformation. Therefore, it is a religion of everything is becoming what it is supposed to be. Mm. It's not what it's supposed to be yet, but it's in the process of becoming that thing. And so when they say, for example, that the military or the school or the United States is systemically racist, it behooves them to make it become that so that it becomes visible for everybody. This is what Lenin meant when he said, accelerate the contradictions was the point was to accelerate them so that they would become visible to everybody so then they would realize the truth of the communist theory that would justify the power of the bolshevik party that had taken over so so when they they insist that the military for example is systemically racist the process of the, the first part of their process is to make sure it becomes that way and then their diagnosis is correct but it has, wow. to, it has to be revealed in actuality. Actuality is this deep thing from Hegel where all this stuff kind of stems from. Where mm-hmm. actuality isn't what's real. You, you, you'd say, no, it's an actual book. You'd, you'd hold it up and say, yeah, it's actual. Like, it's a real thing. That's what we think it means. But actuality has this really complicated uh, understanding from Hegel, which has been adopted by all of this dialectical thought, which is di- what is actual is different than what is real. What is actual is what has been made real. And Mm. so when they say that they, you know, what has been actualized, and so they are attempting to actualize the the first step is to actualize the contradiction so that they become visible, make oppression visible is one of the things they always say that they're doing. Mm. And so if they make the entire organism sick, then they'll say, see how sick it is, your your whole system is sick. There's an underlying disease process. Blah blah blah. It's not just that you cut yourself and that they got infected a little bit. That's
1: yeah. Those are great thoughts. Good analogy. This will really resonate with people who are seeing this in their workplace, are subjected to to these trainings. Um, You know, the I I shared this in another podcast. Um, I'll share it again. The Air Force and I think the entire DoD had done this, but. When Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin came in uh, to office in, I think, January of 2021. Uh, you know, he, he issued a, a series of policy memoranda in which he laid out what our truest national security threats were, and it was COVID-19, it was global climate change and white supremacy, uh, which didn't really resonate with our service members. But then, so you, we've teed up a conversation about white supremacy. He testified about it before the House and Senate Armed Services Committees. Um, among other places uh, that he was talking about that problem of white supremacy. And then he issued a policy memorandum in which he directed all commanders and senior enlisted leaders to have a down day where we take a knee from our actual official military training mission and we discuss extremism. But everyone knew what he meant by extremism because he'd already been making it plainly clear what he meant. And then we received training materials, and in the training materials were examples of white supremacists over the past uh, decade or more who had been caught here and there uh, in the military and held accountable for participating actively in uh, white supremacy groups. But a part of our training that service members were supposed to receive, commanders were supposed to instruct them about these things, things that they probably knew very little about. And so you had the entire active duty force getting on their computers, even at work, probably on their federal government, uh Workstations, and they were googling things like history of the KKK. They're googling uh wh- what are white supremacy groups because they don't even know the names of any white supremacy groups. They'd heard of the Proud Boys because that had been uh, that had been a talking point during the last year, at least, of Trump's administration. And so, anyway, everyone spends time for a month googling things, learning about it, preparing for these conversations that we'd been mandated to participate in, in. and then the DOD uh, announced that it was actually going to be um, pulling data from our our government computers to see what it is that we're actually searching for on the internet. And it revealed statistically that look at all these searches for white supremacy related organizations, look at all the hits that we're getting, we told you we have a problem. So it created an environment in which uh, a certain idea was to be discussed. People start then taking an interest in it, discussing it, and then we're all guilty. Like the climate is, look, we told you all. It took was a little bit of a, a, a data poll for us to show you
0: yeah, that in fact blocks. you
1: do have a problem. You're focused on this stuff far too much, and everyone, you know, I, I imagine that there was only a small, you know, minority of the service members who recognized exactly what had happened. But for months. They'd laid a trap yeah, the and we fell into the trap.
0: Yeah. The, the 100 flowers campaign. This is what Mao did. Mao at one point after he gets his power, he comes out and he says, no, no, no. A flourishing Chinese democracy or democratic republic or whatever he's calling it. Flourishing Chinese people has to have free speech. So we're going to have free speech. Let 100 flowers bloom. So the Baihua 100 flowers and so let's have the 100 flowers shall bloom. And he let everybody have free speech for a period of time. And they just made lists of everybody who denounced the government. And then they went and killed all of them at the end of it. Mm. It, was, it was a deliberate campaign to rat out or to get the people who, who were, were dissident to the, to the regime to rat themselves out. And then they used it against them. It's amazing to find out that our military actually did the 100 flowers campaign strategy against its own people to justify its so-called extremism that's stand right. down, which again, I strongly urge these people not to read my work, but to go get a copy of Robert Lifton's book, which is called thought reform and the psychology of totalism. A that's, Study of That's brainwashing a good in recommendation. China. It is. It, I, I've, I've I read, read this it. on a plane. What a shock. I was flying home one night, uh, from, I think it was on a flight from Denver and I was looking out the window and, um, I was reading this book and it's one of these books. It's not quite like reading one of the, you know, the concentration camp Nazi books, but it's like intense at points and you have to kind of put it down and, you know, reorient your mind. And I remember I was looking out the window. It was dark out. It had just got dark. And I was looking out the window of the plane at some city or whatever down on the ground. And I was like, this can't happen here. We we cannot let this happen here. And then it just clicked. I was like, this is happening here. This has been happening here. And so the process, I urge it, is just like what you described, even though this I I framed in terms of the 100 Flowers campaign, um, I urge people very seriously to understand that. I I mentioned that there was struggle and there was interrogation, but in the cell, outside of interrogation, where you're learning to confess and recognize your crimes, that your struggle session in your cell is supposed to help, there's one other major component, which in Chinese was shui shi, which is study. So you would study the Marxist literature. You would study the people's history of China. Um, and so here you have the same kind of thing. We're going to, they, they have to study what extremism looks like. We have to study a right. one day, you know, stand down. We're going to, we're going to take a, a day off of our normal duties and we're going to study what's going on in the, in the society and so on. And tell me, gonna... tell
1: me the name of this. Yeah. Tell me the name of that guy again, Joseph,
0: Robert J. Lifton, oh. J-A-Y.
1: Yeah, not Joseph. Not Robert Joseph. Lifton. No
0: Josephs.
1: No Josephs. My uh, Robert, Joseph. My grandfather. Robert, not Joseph Lifton.
0: Yes, J. J-A-Y. And okay. yeah, he's got yeah. a number of books. He was a psychologist in and spent a great deal of time in Hong Kong, in, in the, I think in the 40s, or the 50s, I mean, right after. It was during Mao's first campaign when he gathered the data to write this book, not during the Cultural Revolution, which was later in the hey, 60s let- and 70s.
1: Yeah, let me read something about this reminds me of something I included in my book. This will take 2 minutes, but uh, I think it's worthwhile inject at this point. Um, in chapter 5 of my book as I talk about my own survival my SEER training experience with the Air Force survival uh evasion resistance and escape. Um, you know, they they try and w- without saying too much about the training, coerce confessions. From us as prisoners in a prisoner of war camp. And uh, what you're talking about with uh, Robert J. Lifton's work, it reminds me of uh, this segment here, an italicized vignette that I've included at the beginning of chapter five. I write before Vietnam, during the Korean War, hundreds of US Air Force men were held captive by Chinese communists in North Korea and China. After the Korean armistice, 235 such men were returned by the Chinese to the United States. Not surprisingly, the U.S. Air Force expended considerable effort to investigate the experiences of these men so that we might have a full and accurate account of the tactics and techniques that were employed by these Chinese Communist captors. On November 13, 1956, three years after the war ended, a report was presented at a combined meeting of the Section on Neurology and Psychiatry at the New York Academy of Medicine, as part of a panel discussion on quote communist methods of interrogation and indoctrination and, and this is again it's what you're about to hear is exactly what you've been describing from lifton's work It's what they try and do to us in our seer training uh, to teach us something and um yeah this is i find this fascinating the report focuses primarily on chinese communist efforts to extort false confessions from american prisoners something half of American POWs experienced while they were in Chinese Communist captivity. Rather than inflict physical violence, as the prisoners perhaps feared most, the Communist captors would seek to manipulate the beliefs, statements, and conduct of prisoners by establishing controlled environments and through the extortion of false confessions. Why coerce false confessions? Because at least for some prisoners, the repetition of false confessions of guilt over time convinced them they were actually guilty of something acquiescence to the idea of one man's own actual guilt in turn bred self-loathing self-resentment generated an internal struggle that was more successful than even the exogenously imposed torment of a captor in the end it was psychologically crippling turning the captive into a compliant pawn and so their report describes how you know there was this effort to shape human compliance Through these coerced confessions and it was a kind of teaching procedure or shi, as you've pointed out it was it was them re-educating the people that were under their control uh the geneva conventions i point out of august 12th 1949 which among other things established the standards of international law for the humanitarian treatment of combatants during war expressly prohibit any form of coercion used to quote, secure from POWs information of any kind whatsoever. Uh, perhaps you think that's unlikely and you'd be right, but just wait. Oh, okay, no, sorry, that's me. Let me skip forward. Let me, let me just summarize by saying the very thing that was outlawed in the Geneva Conventions of 1949, we are now using as a government in our own country uh, through policy and through our dNI trainings, and it's the point I'm trying to make in this book, where you know what you saw bullies doing in the streets of twenty twenty, which was Marxist in nature, it's Maoist in nature, forcing or coercing these confessions from citizens of their own guilt uh, and shaping their compliance governments are now doing in the federal agencies in our military, and making you know in this effort to kind of make even our military service members shaped into compliant pawns of a particular agenda. And to speak out against it is fearful for people because they recognize that they're going to identify themselves as being an enemy to the cause or an enemy of the agenda. Uh, and you know, if that's not Marxist or communist, I don't know what is. I mean, it really is an aggressive agenda. And, and they do it with a smile on their face with nice words, which makes it so damn dangerous. I mean, it's really dangerous.
0: It is, I, it, um, I, if I recall, and I've heard of course of the the airmen that were taken by the in the Korean war before if I recall correctly the part of the famous revelation that came out and maybe you can correct me if i've got my stories mixed up but one of the the famous revelations was that they expected not just brutal physical punishment but also to have been consistently mistreated but they were often given these kind of weird alternating patterns of psychological brutality and extreme leniency um, that the 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 POWs when they were when, when they got home were describing just how shocked they were that the Americans had propagandized and said, "Well, their communists are so brutal, blah blah blah," but they're actually really nice. They had brutal moments, but then they were so kind and so interested and yada yada yada. And again, I you know we turn back to Lifton. I'll read a couple paragraphs. To give you a sense, since you, again, it injects, this is uh, early in the book where he's actually describing the psychological steps of, um, uh, of thought reform, uh, which is how he translated uh, wash brain. Um, and, and so the section, he says, it, it, this section is about death and rebirth, because the idea is actually to cause a death of the old person and a rebirth into a new man. And he's these two characters. That's a, that's a cult. It is a cult. Yeah. And it turns out that's how Paulo Freire explains the the process of conscientization and the purpose of education is to have the educator and the student die and be reborn on the side of the oppressed. That's what he called the pedagogy of the oppressed. Um, Okay. So he's got these two characters, Dr. Vincent and Father Luca, that he's detailed their treatment. So that's who these two characters are. But he says both Dr. Vincent and Father Luca took part in an agonizing drama of death and rebirth. In each case, it was made clear that the reactionary spy, and that's in quotes, who entered the prison must perish, and that in his place must arise a new man, resurrected in the communist mold. Indeed, Dr. Vincent still used the phrase, quote, to die and be reborn, words which he had heard more than once during his imprisonment. Neither of these men had himself initiated the drama. Indeed, at first both had resisted it and tried to remain quite outside of it. But their environment did not permit any sidestepping. They were forced to participate, drawn into the forces around them until they themselves began to feel the need to confess and to reform. This penetration by the psychological forces of the environment into the inner emotions of the individual person is perhaps the outstanding psychiatric fact of thought reform. The milieu brings to bear upon the prisoner a series of overwhelming pressures, at the same time allowing only a very limited set of alternatives for adapting to them. In the interplay between person and environment, a sequence of steps or operations of combinations of manipulation and response takes place. All of these steps resolve about two policies and two demands, the fluctuation between assault and leniency and the requirements of confession and re-education. The physical and emotional assaults bring about the symbolic death. Leniency and the developing confession are the bridge between death and rebirth, the re-education process, along with final confession create the rebirth experience. And so that's how he describes the process uh, of of Chinese thought reform prisons. Um, You know, with these people, Vincent and Luca, and the other people he interviewed to construct this book, were, as you might say, fresh off the boat. He was in Hong Kong. And when these Westerners would get out of the Chinese thought reform prison, their sentence virtually always included, you've got to leave China. And so they would put them on a boat, ship them to Hong Kong. Best of luck. And he was catching them. Uh, Lifton was catching them within a few days, usually within the first week or so that they were getting off the boat. So they're still, you know, he often described that they're still like kind of dazed and starry eyed and trying to figure out what happened. It's a seven day boat ride from or six or seven day, depending on where they, they came from. Uh, to Hong Kong. And then within a week of, of arriving in Hong Kong, he was usually meeting with them. So within just a few weeks of being out of the prison, he's already talking to them about their experience. And you you hear this process, this psychiatric assault that they they do. Um, and it, it's just why I, I, you know, I said I was reading this book and that's like, I have to, I'm looking out the plane window thinking, oh my gosh, this is what they've done to us. They've made this systemic
1: i like you know you call them the chinese thought reform prisons uh, i'm going to start using that phrase to describe uh, society, I mean, are you know ask the question are we living in an american thought reform prison and I, essentially a lot of what we're seeing i'd say the answer is yes i think
0: that is correct um
1: but they've turned all of society into a thought reform prison and
0: he explains it thought reform is his kind of clinical translation of she now wash brain
1: brainwashing yeah brain wash brain
0: washbrain. show. Yeah, um, Every time I go to show, hand washing. <laughs> wash shisho. hands,
1: wash hands. show. uh yeah. tell me where the show Jian is. It's the it's the uh, hand wash room. Yeah. That's the bathroom. Ceso Jian. show Jian. So, um all right. So, we've we've talked uh, most most of this interview has been um a discussion about the American thought reform prison and um how critical race theory has uh, a, a tremendously significant uh, role in that thought reform and um, she now process. Here's what I want to do with the, the time remaining be, at, at the risk of this being a four hour podcast. I don't want to do that uh, either to you or me or our listener. I'd like to have a kind of a rapid fire round of, of questions now because there's like six other things yeah. uh, that I've got written down that I'd really like to at least have you touch upon. i um, them on TV. Okay, yeah, let's pretend, but not, not pretend so much because you only get 60 seconds there. You're welcome to take 120 seconds here sure. if you'd like. There's, there's a number of important things that you have been hitting on, hitting on, hitting on, on Twitter and your public speeches, and so um, in case not everyone who's listening has heard of some of these things, I'd like them to hear about them today, and then if you'd like to know more information about them, go look into them. Um, And and go look at newdiscourses.com and see James's work. Um, So let's take as much time as is necessary, uh, but still within a round of rapid fire questions. What is ESG? What does that stand for? What is it? And what's happening here?
0: ESG is Environmental Social Governance Scoring. And so you have to understand that it is a scoring system that they're using primarily with corporations. It could be moved to individuals. Uh, as well, which which would then be a social credit score, um, to rate them in terms of their environmental, social, and governance policy within, let's say, if it's a corporation, within their corporate structure. Um, This is billed as being a way to gauge or to approximate long-term investment. Uh, They're likely to be long-term profitable if they have the correct environmental, social, and corporate governance policy. Uh, And maybe that would be true if it were this kind of data-driven, open-ended, competitive field of what defines good environmental and social, especially policy. Corporate governance is its own kind of managerial thing, but it's actually a very captured frame. Uh, A very small number of people have decided what the correct environmental policy is. We see this with, you know, this huge green energy push, this whole push away from fossil fuels and nuclear. Um, Your paper straws are good environmental policy, apparently, even when they come in a plastic bag. Um, whatever. Uh, they said that mask wearing was good environmental policy because COVID 19 represented an environmental hazard. So, 160 billion masks floating in the ocean, or whatever the number is, is good environmental policy because it prevented an environmental problem. Social policy is almost virtually this DEI based social justice driven agenda. Now, should compromise. so is
1: e s g as e s g could you consider it like an umbrella under which now c r t is falling yes. or the diversity inclusion equity yes. industry falls correct because it's all wrapped up under the s
0: yes that's in the s it's probably okay. eighty to ninety percent of the s now they also okay. said it was good social scores to sell weapons for ukraine because um that's a social problem that we have to solve so now weapons manufacturing becomes socially responsible because of this particular problem, so you can kind of see how it's fake but all of the DEI, I would say the S, is, the S score in, in ESG is determined 80 to 90% with compliance with the diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, justice, whatever other words they add into it program that they've set up. And so the question is about corporate responsibility. Does it have a corporate social responsibility demand on it? What does that look like? And they've got a very narrow definition and your score goes up if you participate and it goes down if you don't Why as this is why DEI training is in every corporation.
1: I didn't let you get to the G, but who's enforcing this, a, a corporation's compliance, uh, or who is scoring them in, um, in this ESG compliant
0: arena? Largely the super large financial institutions and banks. Uh, and so Vanguard, why is Vanguard, BlackRock are by far yep. the two biggest. Fidelity State Street are up there. Goldman Sachs is up there. JP Morgan is, is on the list. This kind of very, They're the drivers. These are the main drivers. These are the ones who have cooked up and implemented this kind of narrow definition. They're in cahoots with the World Economic Forum and the United Nations yep. as well. The United Nations has decided that these are the key metrics that will push us toward their so-called sustainable development goals. They're right. 17 goals to transform the world. It's a very Marxist phrase for yep. you. And, um that's who's driving this. That's what this is. It is actually... So bankers,
1: bankers, bankers the wealthy. Yes. And you've got the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab and others that we've been hearing yes. about. And we've got uh, the United Nations.
0: Yes, that's overwhelmingly okay. it. I mean, the World Bank is involved, but the, we're, we're just talking about bankers again at this
1: point. They're not even hiding the terms they're using. I mean, th- they're talking about the great reset yes. of the global economy and of the world order. Sounds wrong. I it's mean, like they're, they're being very... But it sounds like a giant communist revolution.
0: It is. Yeah, that's correct. It's exactly what it is. Operated through banks and corporations primarily. Who
1: are, who are kindly and smile and um, behind, yeah, at least publicly.
0: There are stakeholders. Now the trick is that people need to understand is the way that they're doing this is that they're leveraging as it's called in the, the business other people's money. They're leveraging primarily everybody's retirements, everybody's pensions these bankers have set up uh, passive investment mutual fund type programs where they are the stewards of lots and lots and lots of other people's money. I mean, maybe $10 trillion of other people's money and an unfathomable amount of money. And that's what they're using to leverage. That's what they're using to... So BlackRock maybe manages $6 trillion in other people's assets. And then what they do with that is they go and they buy nearly controlling shares of lots of corporations that they then threaten to pull. They also uh, set up as an investment capital firm, they then set up, you know, well, if you want us to invest in your company, if you want us to buy shares, et cetera, you've got to be compliant with our social environmental. Uh, and if you're and not compliant, business. they
1: can cripple your business.
0: We will drop cripple you. a
1: corporation. You
0: will not have investment capital the biggest reservoir of of investment money in the world is going to bail out on you. Your price, your stock price is going to plummet in a crisis in one day. Good luck to you from there. You know? So they've got almost a financial gun to the heads of these corporations. Mm-hmm. I don't know if maybe Disney wants to be woke. Maybe Coca-Cola wants to be woke. But I'm willing to bet that there is, a, in reality, a bell curve of corporate attitudes about whether or not they mm-hmm. want to be woke. And it's not, but, all but of they've them got a vested financial interest. That's right. The, the vested financial interest. And so the, I, the, the way I often phrase it in public talks is if you want to control the, a bull, and you have the bull of, of Wall Street, if you want to control the bull of Wall Street, you got to get a ring through its nose that you can pull it around by. And ESG is the ring they put through the bull on Wall Street.
1: Hmm. Wow. Okay. That's very helpful. Uh, the G. Did we talk about the G?
0: G is corporate governance. That's why you hire officers oh, like yeah. DEI and ESG officers, uh, and this is also why you have to have uh, diverse C suites in lots of companies. You, if you don't have at least you know one woman and you know whatever other diverse panel that they decide on your board, then you have a low governance score. So your ESG score overall will be low like I said, it's a scoring metric. What they're doing is they're they're rating your business in, in terms of how ESG compliant you are, claiming that that's a proxy for long-term profitability, and then using that as a justification to invest large amounts of other people's money in what should be a stable long-term bet. Are, theory, are the
1: scores, are the ESG scores public?
0: Uh, most companies do have their, pub, their their ESG scores listed publicly. You can actually look them up in a lot of cases. I don't know if they're required to. Um, I do know that, for example, the governor of Oklahoma runs a, a – I don't know as governor that he still runs it, but he did run a uh, financial business previously, and on their website they proudly advertise that they have a perfect ESG score.
1: Did you see the natural gas plant or headquarters or one of its – Yes. Uh, I think it's in, uh, where, where in Oklahoma in, in is that?
0: North, central North uh, or in Oklahoma.
1: It's the, the, there's the, been some explosions and it's been on fire and yeah. they've evacuated the citizens within like a two mile radius.
0: Yeah, it's uh, nuts. I wonder
1: if it was ESG compliant.
0: Yeah, well, I don't know. Uh, Tesla <laughs> is not ESG compliant once Elon Musk started to speak up about how he's not sure about how some of this stuff
1: works. Right. Okay, L- let's let's move on. This is the rapid fire Round of questions. What is stakeholder capitalism?
0: Stakeholder capitalism has a pronunciation. So what, what it's it's a new form of capitalism. We'll, we'll give it that shrift. Um, it's a new form of capitalism in which people who are designated as stakeholders or stakeholder representatives make the big calls about how things have to be organized on the macro level. So you have a council of stakeholders who... Works in concert. So these are big, big swinging um, players like, uh, for example, you know, Bill Gates is often on these kind of stakeholder panels. Um, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum guys are going to be on that. Uh, Mark Benioff would be a major stakeholder that uh, they're the people who know and they're going to they have a council that's going to make the big picture decisions about maybe what ESG scores are going to be and not be why Elon Musk speaking up makes his social score have to go down for example and his ESG score tank at Tesla Um, so the stakeholders are and I keep saying it's a council because if you I don't know if you speak Russian or how many people speak Russian I speak very little
1: yeah
0: I don't speak Russian but I do know the word for council in Russian which is Soviet (laughs) so stakeholder capitalism is a is is a um, Soviet enterprise in the literal meaning of the word to take over the macro scale organization of corporation corporate governance and its uh connection to large foundation and government entities
1: i mean they're they're telling you in the in in this words or this term stakeholder capitalism what they're doing but it's crafty again because they're using the word capitalism as if like oh this is all a good thing it's healthy but uh the state we still believe in capitalism but the stakeholders are going to start to determine well they trick outcomes. you on
0: stakeholder too because okay let's say with the schools right your children are receiving an education in the schools that means you as a parent are a primary stakeholder in what the school is doing in the literal meaning of the word stakeholder and this is the way most people understand what it is to be a stakeholder so they sell you the idea that the stakeholders are somehow all the people who are affected by the corporations But you can't have all the people actually tell you what they think. Instead, what you do is you have a council, like the European Union or something, that's going to make the decisions on behalf of all the people that they claim to represent. So you have stakeholder experts who form the council to make the decisions, but those decisions are being made on behalf of the actual stakeholders. So the idea is that it's it's pretending to be responsible to the people who actually have a stake in what's going on, while actually removing all accountability.
1: So it's the Soviet uh, stakeholders who are really in charge on behalf of all of the other stakeholders who uh, at least got to choose who all of their wise council yeah, members are. You you're were. a stakeholder hey, in so climate much.
0: policy, but you're probably too stupid to know what's really going on. So Bill Gates mm-hmm. is going to determine it for you,
1: right? Okay. So you've mentioned public education a couple of times. I've seen that you've talked about child grooming. In what way is child grooming uh, taking place? And I'm changing gears here. Where is it happening? How is it happening? Um, And how do parents recognize when it's happening so they can get involved and stop it?
0: I mean, so it's happening everywhere, basically, at this point. And the entertainment industry, I would say that there's a huge one-two punch between the entertainment industry and the schools. Uh, That's a huge, huge thing. Social media is another I'm, I would classify that broadly under the entertainment industry. Um, so there, there's this kind of background noise where the kids are being introduced to these concepts. Now, I'm also being a little more narrow, and I'm actually talking, I think most people in the word grooming do think of the sexual aspect, uh, but I actually mean it more in terms of thought reform, uh, cult grooming, uh, more broadly. They are interrelated, as a matter of fact. Uh and the primary thing that's happening is occult grooming. They're using the sexual stuff primarily to facilitate the cult grooming. Uh, though there is some actual sex grooming happening as well, I think it's kind of a a catastrophe that's riding along and is not the primary intent of the cult grooming process. But the basic idea is that if through one means or another, often through the entertainment industry or social media, they're priming the children with questions about sex, sexuality, et cetera, then they go to school. And then they are fed further information. If they haven't been primed at home, they'll get primed there. And then when those questions arise, they're being put into what are called. And this is if you had to like narrow it down to one simple thing for parents to watch out for is anywhere that they have so-called affirmative care or social transitioning in kind of an affirmative affirmation based system. They're they're grooming your kids to uh, be unstable and unsure about issues of sex, gender and sexuality. From there, there's lots of different avenues of exploitation. Most of which is going to be to kind of funnel them into um, queer activism, which may or may not involve adopting an identity. Uh, But there will also be, you know, an open door to actual sexual abuse, which we are seeing in an unfortunate number of school systems as well. Because children who are comfortable talking about sex and sexuality at school with their teachers or people that they trust are less likely contrary to what they actually tell you, are less likely to realize that something inappropriate is going on, and they're therefore less likely to report it, et cetera. So what parents need to be watching for is anything that has to do with affirmative care, affirmation. Um, it's Your school system or whatever is really far gone if they're actually socially transitioning kids. I would tell parents also that one of the things they need to be watching out for is anything in the school system, that varies state-by-state, state, what's allowed where they're enabling medical treatment to take place in the school uh, without parent involvement, to say nothing of parent consent, without parent involvement, you have a lot to be worried about. That could be as simple as getting kids put on things like Ritalin or uh, Adderall or some, you know, without even informing parents, with no parents involved whatsoever behind their backs. How are uh, they administering
1: be, that? They, they don't get sent home with it. They show up at school and they have it administered, or what?
0: They there are programs of telemedicine. I know this is happening in North Carolina, which has the most—believe it or not—North Carolina has the lax, the most lax laws. Uh, California and a couple of other famous, famously blue states are kind of next, um, and. California, the age limit is 12 and up in North Carolina. It's the most lax because there is no age limit at all. It could be pre-K, but they will actually set it up. If a, if there are reasons that the, the, the adults in the room, if we, will, we want to call them at teachers or whatever, or if the children request it, that they can set up a private telemedicine cons- consultation like via iPad or Zoom or whatever with a doctor. They can then do the prescription wow. and keep it all in-house. Uh, so the, that's, legal. that's in, legal in North Carolina. In North if you're Carolina a, if and you're 12, in several other it. states, twelve and up, and some other states, fifteen or sixteen and up. And so, parents should be paying attention to this because, like I said, it could be these kind of psychoactive, hyperactivity drugs. It could be SSRIs and depression, anxiety drugs. It could also, at least in principle, if not in practice, in many places, be puberty blockers or transition drugs.
1: That's oh, that's terrible. It's, it's to it's, say the least.
0: It is the most alarming catastrophe of policy that I think I've ever seen anywhere to allow minors to use the school as a backdoor to prescription medical treatment while being affirmed by the social and professional environment in the school into thinking that this is what they need to do to circumvent the role of the parent as you would think that you're the primary stakeholder, but some other stakeholders know better than you.
1: That's right. Um, okay two more questions uh and then uh, we'll we'll wrap things up. Um let's turn now to the LGBTQ movement and queer theory. Uh one of the things that you do talk about in cynical theories your book uh is queer theory and um you know all of these cynical theories that you uh, uh write about are rooted in Marxist ideology postmodernism so so we just got through pride month and uh, I saw A lot of, you know, I follow all of the military related uh, Twitter feeds. Uh, There's the recruiting services, there's Army feeds and Air Force feeds and Space Force feeds. And not only are we saying, hey, we include you if you're gay or bisexual or transitioning, bisexual implies two sexes, by the way, but we celebrate you. And now um, I just saw an announcement that the Air Force put out where they're having a bunch of their transgender service members um hosting a panel to talk about you know basically the the agenda the trans agenda um so the question i have then um and i'm not asking for a criticism of people of course i'm interested in the agenda and the ideological roots of the lgbtq agenda is it is it accurate to say that uh the queer agenda and and there is a and to be clear for the listener there's an academic discipline called queer theory, uh, and there's feminine studies and black studies and so on and so forth. Is it fair to say that queer theory is rooted in Marxist ideology?
0: Yeah, it's queer Marxism. It's the idea that normalcy, just like what we did with, with, with race, that whiteness is a special form of property, blah, blah, blah. Exactly the same. Being able to consider yourself normal is a special kind of cultural property that grants you access to society and other people who are designated as uh abnormal who have taken upon themselves the word queer as a positive discourse of resistance fall outside of that uh, access to that property and its benefits so it is a marxist therefore they're
1: oppressed and there's an oppressor class and and then you get into the same marxist um correct oppressor oppressed narrative and
0: it's actually weirdly even more marxist than a lot of these other It's more Marxist than critical race theory, if we look back at what Marx was actually talking about. Marx's philosophy, and I don't want to get off on a long tangent with this, but was that really what we are as entities is that we are socially constructed or socially conditioned entities. There is material conditions in society, he said, and the material conditions create a social structure by the interaction of the upper class, the superstructure, and the lower class, the infrastructure. And that that socially conditions us. So people in the proletariat only believe so much as possible with their lives because they've been socially conditioned to be limited. And so they have a limited range of subjectivity is the way that Marx would have phrased that or or held it. But within your range of subjectivity is where you can imagine a different life or what life might contain. And so the goal of consciousness is to expand the range of subjectivity in the oppressed to make them believe that they can be history makers in queer theory the very fact of your body imprisons you in a range of subjectivity if you were born in a male body you are now trapped in a range of what society accepts as what it means to be male if you were born in a female body you are now trapped in what it means so your your subjective range is limited to you have to be a woman on the terms society has created for what it means to be a woman that is the ultimate nature of queer theory, which it tries to break things down by complicating them. That's the word it likes to use. It complicates sex. It complicates gender, it complicates sexuality. So when Kentonji Brown-Jackson sits on the stand and is asked by Marshall Blackburn, Senator Marshall Blackburn, what is a woman? And she fumbles around and can't answer and gives a transphobic response of, I'm not a biologist. Um, the reason that she did that is because the concept of woman has to have been complicated so that people can be liberated from the range of subjective experience that comes with the societal application of the word woman. That they don't think that being a woman itself means almost anything. It means parts. It means certain, you know, small numbers of things like, you know, any versus outie or whatever means chromosomes in a particular arrangement, but not another one. But those aren't, in their view, very deterministic. It's a social environment that's created around those facts of nature that create all of the deterministic kind of things, including possibly even your hormone levels, that you're raised raised to be a boy, so you're raised so that your testosterone will be higher, yada, yada. This is an argument that has been forwarded, sometimes is not forwarded, goes back and forth. But the fact is that it is the social condition. So when you were assigned your sex at birth, that's the phrase they use, your doctor and your parents locked you into a narrow subjective range of what it means to be how you were born. And this has to be blown open. That categorization itself is doing a violence to you because you might not feel like you fit in that. And so queer theory exists to blow that open. Now, when we say the LGBTQ agenda, this is where I like to, I feel like it's very important to be very nuanced. Because in fact, if I were to write out LGBTQ agenda, what I would actually do is put LGB. Then I put the T in parentheses, and I put a slash and put the Q. Because the T is sometimes goes either way. The trans thing, it sometimes cuts either way. Because there's a, there was a very liberal, in the classical liberal sense, civil rights movement for LGB sometimes T that I think has unfolded over the past 50 years, but primarily in the last 15 years, that was a legitimate civil rights movement. and then And people called it, in the 90s, the gay agenda. That was a mistake because there was a queer agenda, which was a Marxist sleeper hiding inside of that, which was the real thing. The Q is completely separate. That is is not the same thing. None of LGB, as you pointed out, bisexual means there are two. None of that makes any sense under Q. And Q, there okay. are no boundaries. There are no rules. There are no limits. You can't transition under Q because you can't. There's no starting place and no finish point. place. Hmm. Nothing ever happened. So that's fake. There's no bisexual because that's fake. Lesbian and gay have to be complicated so that sometimes they so, include so, straight, et cetera, and we don't know what men and women are. So the, the Q well, is the agenda. The Q so, is so the So the Q slope. is
1: the agenda, and yet it's lumped in with all of these other um, letters of the alphabet as if they're all united Correct. in a front. Correct. Yeah. Well, do do any of them do do any of them uh, become offended when they understand that? and say, Hey, I don't want to be lumped in with the other letters.
0: I have seen through the 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 hijinks of Pride Month, um, many of which were humiliating, Uh, a very large number of people say, I'm homosexual. Do not call me gay anymore. I'm not down with this whole acronym. Don't call me lesbian anymore. I'm homosexual. It is what it is. It's a fact about Mm -hmm. who I am. I am not with these people. There are a lot of people, even within what was broadly the LGBTQ whatever movement over the past 20 years, who have realized that a Marxist element in the queue has betrayed them and has Mm. ruined everything. By the way, you mentioned the military. I'm still, you meant the Air Force in specific, I'm still pretty pissed off. I don't get pissed off about a lot of these things. But I saw a recruitment tweet from Air Force recruiting of them, of some, some, I guess cadets or I don't know what you call them. Sorry. Running with the rainbow flag.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: And I'm like, that's not the American flag. What is going on? I yeah. I yeah, don't even like, it. I'm not mad about the rainbow flag. Although I'm starting to think it's a colonizer flag. Uh, that's being colonized mm. by that diagonal. The, it, wedge that they're they're sticking in the side mm-hmm. of it now <laughs> but um it's a colonizer's flag it's being colonized but that's what's funny but the fact that but it's it, like, not an supplanted american the
1: american flag and was held by troops in uniform Correct. as they jogged see, in a formation i yeah, could see like...
0: i could see the Ameri- I i'm not even going to be super strict i'm not military i don't know i could see the mm-hmm. american flag no question i could see a pow flag i'm okay with that i could see an air force flag that's it that flag is not one of those it does not belong right. there and if I'm yeah. wrong about the Air Force flag or the POW flag, that's fine. I'm, I'll take the correction. But the American flag, with possibly those two exceptions, I thought about it for a lot. I put way too much time thinking about it. <laughs> what is the limit of acceptable, in my opinion? Hmm. Where would I, I like if it's that blue line flag, which is American flag changed colors for the, for the police? No, 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 no. You're, no. Just fly the normal one. You're the military. Just the American yeah. flag. But I understand POW, and I don't even know if there's an Air Force flag, to be honest with you. But yeah, you know, whatever. I'll tell you
1: that you didn't, uh, you haven't been told, but that is the new Air Force flag.
0: Well, I, Rainbow from what I understand, LGBTQ you know, and I, I know how you guys do, I thought it was the Navy flag, but wait, uh, these are other jokes. Um,
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. And, um, As kindly as many of our service members want to be towards any community. And they have been before all of these trainings began. These are respectful people. They respect one another. They're respectful of others' life choices. They don't want to see people in uniform running with that.
0: No. Uh, And it's like,
1: uh, I I saw this meme the other day during Pride Month. And uh, there was this like child backed up against a wall. I think it was a child or a teenager. And there was someone that was playing the tuba, and the tuba had them backed up to the wall, and it was like, I don't know what the caption was, it was something like, this is what Pride Month actually is. And it's this person playing a tuba, backing people up against a wall, it's like, you will swallow my belief system or else.
0: Yeah, it is, it is. Um, But I I think that the right nuance here, and I'm actually gonna push back on a word you use, not to be confrontational, but you know, we said respectful of communities. No, respectful of individuals.
1: Oh, did I not say particularly
0: caring. Yeah, we all do it. We've, we've all been a little yeah. bit like, this is where we were talking earlier about where there's these two trees that are planted right next to each other. Right. And it's so easy to slip between the branches. I don't believe I watched the divisions. I watched people upset about, about what we were just discussing. I don't believe that there's anything cohesive known as an LGBT mm-hmm. or add whatever letters or take whatever letters you want community. I think that there are people who form communities and that's relevant to it. But that's a different question. There's not some cohesive thing, and especially as a political class. And when we start thinking in terms of political classes, we miss what actually is there. Um, But the nuance that I think is important is that I think there was a huge difference between the gay civil rights, which was not. Absolutely, was not a gay agenda. And then this Marxist sleeper cell that was working within it, that is the queer program. They have the real some Q, things in
1: the point. real QAnon.
0: And in fact, you know, the Q is even weirder because the Q is like this weird Marxist cannibalization of feminism. It's not even, it's not got much in common with the others, except that the Q word was used to describe everybody else, right? It's like this weird linguistic trick. It's actually sex-positive feminism that decided to just blow out and say, anything goes. Starting in the 70s and 80s, really formally in the 80s. But it was actually, a, it's a branch of of this weird feminism that's kind of like blown out and cannibalized itself. That's the, the queer theory or the queer Marxism. And it doesn't share a lot. It shares nothing in common with any civil rights action. If you talk to actually gay activists who were active in the the liberal aspect of the civil rights, the gay civil rights movement in the 90s, when it was kind of at one of its peaks, they said, they will tell you that one of the biggest fights that they had, they had to fight the social conservatives on the one hand, and they had to fight the queers on the queer theorists on the other hand. And I've heard them say, Andrew Sullivan, I'll name who said this, he said that we we went out, we got coffee in DC one day. I don't think he's a fan of mine now, but whatever. We went out and got coffee because Trump, But we went out and got coffee by the Trump Hotel, as it turns out, in D.C., and he's sitting there, we're talking, and he got so upset, he got so mad, and he said, if I had, if I ever knew that they were going to force me to be queer, if I had to be queer, like they mean, I never would have come out. He said that we had to fight those people. They didn't want marriage equality because they call it homonormativity. It makes homosexual normal, and they don't want normal. They want it to be outside and excluded and oppressed so that they can use that to foment discontent and revolution.
1: Excellent points. And, you know, I'll point out an article that I had read one year ago, like two days ago, July 9th, uh, 2021. Andrew Sullivan wrote an article called What Happened to You? The Radicalization of the American Elite Against Liberalism. Yeah. And it's phenomenal. It is. I mean... uh, and uh he gets he says, you know, he opens the article and he says, What happened to you? It's a question I get a lot on Twitter. When did you become so far right? Is the question that he gets. Why have you become a white supremacist, a transphobic, a misogynistic eugenicist? Uh and he then goes into this article to describe how ludicrous s- so much of what we're seeing in the um American thought reform prison really is. And uh, how dangerous it is. If if,
0: if we had the vocabulary to understand what was going on and phrased it in a little bit of antiquated language, the the, the opening of this article would be, what happened to you? When did you become a class enemy? That's what it is. The Marxist element has colonized and erupted. You know, some people use the cordyceps mushroom as a, an example. It's like a parasitic fungus. Mm-hmm. It gets in a bug. The bug goes and acts weird, and then it grows up out of the ground eventually with a fruiting body that the Chinese go pick. And Next use time, his,
1: we'll uh, have you on to talk mushrooms.
0: Well, yeah. I, mean, I got some turkey tail growing in the yard that just came up. I'm excited oh. about that.
1: Well, hey, le- now let me, let me uh, wrap things up by asking you one more question. I've seen you on a number of occasions, various events at which we've spoken together. Uh, you sometimes have really neat t-shirts on uh, that have language on them. And one of the t-shirts I saw you wearing said based or I am based or yeah. something like that. What is based?
0: Well, anybody, I think your military audience is going to be able to understand this because I understand that you you guys all have to, speaking of that flag, I'll have to do jujitsu now. Um, man, I just got myself in trouble. That was the you first did. paper. One of the but first papers we actually wrote, by the way, <laughs> was that the, the, the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, because oh, Peter Bogosian but, practices yeah, it. Yeah, t- right?
1: talk about that. Talk about that.
0: So the, the fake papers. Yeah. So we wrote. Talk about
1: that real quick. Yeah. yeah and, we're, then, we're, and then we'll get into what is based. Okay.
0: 17, 2017 and 18, myself, Helen Pluckrose, and Peter Bogosian, two of my colleagues, uh, wrote 20 fake academic articles to submit to peer reviewed academic journals to find out if you can actually just get absolute insanity published or horrible things published. Because they are politically correct in the kind of woke ideology, and we were, you know, very successful at this. We ended up getting seven of our twenty articles accepted to publication. Some in high-ranking journals. Some got awards for excellence in scholarship.
1: What What were some of the uh, titles? I mean, there was one about dogs and yeah, dog behavior the dog, in the parks.
0: Well, you see, the hard part is I'm trying to. The titles are sometimes complicated. Uh, because they're academic, but I remember what we our nicknames were. So there was the dog park paper that we called dog park, but the title was "Uh, reactions to queer performativity and heteronormativity or something like that in urban dog parks in Portland, Oregon." Um, it so we we assessed the idea that rape culture. We assessed the idea of rape culture by using as a as an implicit bias proxy the way that people reacted to watching dogs hump each other in dog parks and that you could somehow figure this out. And then we concluded that, that dog parks are rape condoning spaces and therefore we should train men the way that we train dogs <laughs> to combat rape culture. That paper was accepted by and it. was published. It was pu- accepted and published by a leading journal and the leading journal in feminist geography and given an award of excellence and scholarship by that journal.
1: But they didn't know who, you, I mean, so did you publish it under your names?
0: No, we published that under a fake invented person by the name of Helen Wilson.
1: Helen Wilson uh, got an award. She for got an award, that. that's
0: right. Yeah. Terrific. It Congratulations. Excellence in scholarship. Um, they were going to give it pride of place in the journal that year. And so another one we titled, being kind of cheeky as it were, we titled it going in through the back door. We insinuated that the reason that straight men are so often transphobic is because they don't practice putting things in their butts. And that was called an important contribution to knowledge and was accepted. We had another paper that was our, what was it? Um, our struggle is, my struggle is our struggle or our struggle is my struggle. is Our struggle is my struggle. So, you know, obviously my struggle is Mein Kampf. It was a right. rewrite of a chapter of Mein Kampf into the language of intersectional feminism and in a social work journal accepted that wow. paper, which is horrifying. this is
1: phenomenal work.
0: Yeah, this is great. This is important. And so, you know, there were a bunch of them and seven were still under peer review. The Wall Street Journal caught us and told on us before we were done. <laughs> so there were still seven out there being decided upon. A sociologist looked at all of it and said probably either 11 or 12 of them would have got in and eight or nine would have failed based on, mm-hmm. you know, peer-reviewed comments and the quality of the writing, etc. Um, so it was a pretty wild thing. But the very first paper, which had no chance, it was never going to get in that we wrote, was that Brazilian people only practice Brazilian jujitsu to uh, have a hetero-masculine-acceptable outlet of latent homosexuality that they refu- refuse to express <laughs> in other ways, which, of course, if you've ever been in a BJJ gym, is like a constant underlying joke anyway. I did BJJ a long time ago, um, but never to any...
1: BJJ, way. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu.
0: Yeah, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which I understand a lot of the military has to do for their hand-to-hand combat training now. Um, now we know why. Because of the pride flag. Um, and jokes write themselves, what can you do? So, faced. <laughs> People in the military, because they often know something about hand-to-hand combat, that will understand. The metaphor to the word based is that if you have well the way that I use anyway is that if you have good base, it's hard to throw you, right? If you get your weight down, you get your your body centered, your center of mass is hanging down low, whatever it takes, you're not going to get flipped over or swept or whatever else. That's kind of the metaphor, but it's that in terms of your principles. And so with this kind of communist subversion, what it means to be based is that you're not easily subverted. In fact, maybe you're not subvertible at all. You understand your principles, you know why they're your principles, and these kind of little manipulations like you're stupid you're you're a bad person, you're a racist, you're this and that they don't really affect you um because you know who you are and you don't let that kind of influence your thoughts and behavior in a uh way that's not under your control uh so that's what it means to be based it means that you know you're you're basically not manipulable uh, by these different kinds of subversive tactics. And I liked the word because I had practiced martial arts for a long time. And so I know all about the idea that if you don't want to get swept in jujitsu or you don't want to get thrown in judo, it's a matter of having good base. If you want to have power in your strikes, if you're using a striking art, boxing or kickboxing or whatever else, you've got to be, you know, rooted in your base in order to throw a hard kick. And so I liked the idea that there's this like parallelism between what it means to be a solid character in terms of a a fighter a physical fighter and a solid character in terms of being a principled uh individual who's not easily manipulated by say communist subversion
1: excellent well uh i'll leave a final invitation with uh the listening audience to get based yeah Uh, we need to uh get based uh we live in the uh We've changed from the Chinese thought reform prison to a kind of uh, growing American thought reform prison uh, that's spreading throughout academia, all of society, and unfortunately, including our uniform services and uh, federal agencies. And now, under the umbrella of ESG, uh, we've got all of uh, America's corporations now under the thumb of woke, uh, powerful. Uh, capitalist stakeholders the soviet council of uh, yeah. of uh, the new cap- the new rulers of capitalism if you will but uh we couldn't have um spent our 2 hours better than listening to james Lindsay, conceptual james at twitter uh and uh take some time if you want to learn more about these subjects uh to go visit him at uh, newdiscourses.com as well And, uh, having said that, James, I'm going to give you the last, uh, plug here. Anything else, any other plug or pitch you'd like to give, uh, for the upcoming books or, uh, I guess last thoughts, last comments?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the next thing that's going to come out is a kind of a significant publication outside of my podcast, which everybody should go listen to the new discourses podcast. If you want to learn a lot more about this. Um, but I have, uh, book coming up that I'm going to call The Marxification of Education, and it's mostly going to explain the, the uh, educational program of a Brazilian guy by the name of Paulo Freire, who was a Marxist who redesigned education, as, as, as I'm going to argue in the book, obviously. He didn't just turn education into Marxist indoctrination. He made education a Marxist theory itself, that the theory of education is reframed in the Marxist way, which is you know there's a special form of property being educated that is reserved by people who set the terms of it for themselves. Blah blah blah, and thus retooled the entire point of education into the thought reform conscientization process. And that in fact is where we get that word of conscientization is from, Paulo Freire. So that book should be. Uh, I think my typesetter is not available till the second week of August. So maybe late August we'll be able to get that out. Uh, so you'll want to keep your eyes open for it. I'll be doing two workshops on the s- same subject uh, coming up soon here at the end of July in the D.C. area the last weekend. The flyer is on new discourses now if you're interested in coming to D.C. the la- last weekend of the month and listening to me talk about those is- education issues. And I'm going to do a repeat of that workshop at the end of September, the last couple of days of September up there in Idaho, but in Twin Falls, not in the Boise area. So um we're already getting that rigged up with my Idaho people.
1: Good. You're popular in Idaho. I
0: am popular in Idaho. We're going to do it over in Twin Falls to kind of have the other side of the state for once and also to make it more accessible to Utahns. Yeah, might good. want to roll up from Salt Lake.
1: If you're in Salt Lake, take the... uh what, three-hour drive, maybe two-and-a-half-hour drive up to Twin Falls, uh, and tell me the dates again?
0: That will be, oh my gosh, it's literally the last two days of September, so the 29th and the 30th, okay. I think. Good.
1: Yeah, time well spent. Uh What else?
0: Well, other than that, I mean, I'll be everywhere like usual. I've had yeah. actually a couple, <laughs> I've had two long stays at home, but I'll be back on the road starting later this week, Uh speaking for Moms for Liberty, then for Turning Point, then for young Americans for freedom, uh, or young American foundation or whatever. I always get YAF wrong and they always make fun of me, but going back on tour, I guess, but nothing specific as, as I do and trying to, you know, tidy up the Marxification of education theology of Marxism book. I think I'll have laid out by the end of the year, uh, for sure. So look forward to that publication and the work actually, if, If I were going to if you if you want to deep dive in understanding the worldview behind this, um, the lecture series should be coming out within a couple of weeks on the Sovereign Nations channel. Sovereign Nations is the organization that hosted that that uh, six lecture series in Phoenix in Phoenix that we did at the beginning of June. Yeah. And we should have the videos. I just saw saw the guy who runs Sovereign Nations tweeted it um, the other day. And said that he thinks it'll be within about two weeks. So we're going to start putting those videos out, and so twelve hours of lectures plus we had some panels that we put together, lots of deep dive into what is really going on to understand the kind of operating system of Marxism and how it's installed itself throughout our Western civilization and United States, you know, system in specific. I would, if you really want to understand what's going on and have your eyes opened, that's you don't want to miss that.
1: Excellent. Well, James, I sure appreciate your time today. I think uh, what you've shared is uh, eye-opening for those who haven't been able to encounter uh, an education about these things and edifying for those who have begun to look into it uh, but who need to refine uh, their thinking on these topics. And as always, I think you do great work. So thanks for taking the time to join us here today.
0: We appreciate it, Matt.